Welcome, everyone, to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley, a national news and talk program dedicated to military veterans' issues. And now, your hosts, David Corey and Richard Hurley. Good evening. Welcome to the Veterans News Hour for December 28, 2020, our final show of this year. This is Air Force veteran David Corey, along with my co-host, Richard Hurley. Thank you for joining us this evening. Hope you all are doing well. I hope you all had a blessed and relaxing Christmas. I know it's been a stressful and very difficult year for everyone, for the country, and in fact, for the whole world. And as 2020 nears its end and new year begins, let's hope and pray the next year is better than this one's been. Meanwhile, we've got a great show for you tonight, and to get things rolling, let's go over to Richard Hurley. Hello, Richard. How you doing? Hey, I'm doing great, David, and how's everybody doing? I just want to uh, say amen to what you just said there, David. Yeah, I hope uh, uh, everyone gets through the remainder of this year, and, and 2021 turns out to be a little bit better as we, we try to beat this thing and get back into the new normal. And I do hope everyone's doing out there, and... And you're uh, wearing your mask and washing your hands and social distancing. So I had to say that because I believe in that. Tonight our special guest is going to be Lauren Price of the National Veterans Advocacy Group called Veteran Warriors. She's going to discuss some important issues of great interest to veterans and their families. Lauren has been on our show many times, and it's always a privilege and an honor that she comes back and shares with us all the all the things that she and her group are involved in. It's, it's people like Lauren that really make things happen in D.C. and and uh, try to keep these uh, our politicians honest and, and looking out for our veterans. But I want to remind everybody that this is a call-in show, so you can call in and talk to Lauren if you have any issues. Uh, call David and my, or myself if you want to talk about uh, something that's bothering you with the VA or a claim you might have or something dealing with your hospitalization, your medical situation. Your views and your comments and your questions are very important to us, and they're important to other veterans who, who are listening to this show. And that number is one eight 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 six two seven six zero zero eight. Again, that number is one triple eight six two seven six zero zero eight. And if David and I remember during the show, we'll try to give that number back out. Again, that's one triple eight six two seven six zero zero eight. Back to you, David. Thank you, Richard. Let me introduce our special guest. Lauren Price is the founder of Veteran Warriors, a national veterans advocacy group, and she has led that organization since its creation in 2009. She has testified before Congress on veteran issues. She served in the United States Navy for a decade between January 2005 and January 2015, including serving for more than a year in Iraq as a convoy driver as well as a public affairs officer in Baghdad. She co-founded the veterans group called Veteran Warriors with her husband, Jim Price, who is a retired Navy senior chief. She's been our guest many times over the past several years to discuss topics such as toxic contamination of veterans caused by open-air burn pits, as well as the controversial VA caregiver support program. Lauren is our guest again uh, this evening to discuss the issue of toxic contamination affecting many war veterans. So let's welcome Lauren Price to the Veterans News Hour. Lauren, how are things going? Just excellent. Thank you for having me again, David and Rick. I really appreciate you. We've got some updated information for everyone on 
the big toxic exposure world. So well, great. I'll and share uh, it with you guys. That's super. We're glad you could be with us. Let's start with some background um, for listeners that may not be as familiar with this topic. Uh, let's start with some background about the use of open burn pits in the war zones. How large were those burn pits, and what was burned in them? Well, the Department of Defense started consistently using open-air burn pits during the first Gulf War. Um, we've got evidence going back to 1990 uh, where they were using them in Kuwait and essentially burning the same kinds of things that they've burned all along. Uh, we're talking solvents and paint and styrofoam and plastic and equipment. And if you think about the equipment, every single piece, nut and bolt, of every piece of military equipment is painted with a corrosive resistant paint called Kark paint. And after the first Gulf War, they found out that that paint, when it was ignited, whether by welding or the vehicle caught on fire, um, that the paint became a carcinogen. And those exposed to it, especially those who were in close proximity to the fumes from it, um, were almost assured to get cancer. And the Army issued a substantial regulation laying out how anything with cart paint on it was to be handled for incinerating or welding. Um, everybody had to wear like high-grade PPE and respirators and everything else. And that stuff went in there by the ton. Um, batteries, computer, you know, which has silicone chips in it and all these things. And despite what people think, there was not an enormous amount of medical waste, um, which even in this country, incinerating is our standard for disposing of medical waste. But the bigger thing was when you take literally tons of styrofoam and plastic and batteries, and then you add jet fuel to them, which is not a pure fuel, it's a mixture of fuel, you actually create new chemicals. And some of these, the, the most famous one everybody knows about was Balad in Balad, Iraq. That one was approximately 10 football fields in size. Um, the reason it's so well known is because that's the one space that was so well documented for uh, air quality testing. Um, we have air quality testing at Balad going back to 2003, showing that it was emitting dangerous levels of toxins. And the officers that were in charge of these reports were warning the Department of Defense that it was dangerous to continue to allow people to be exposed to these levels and that they needed to do something to remediate them. As I said, this goes back to 2003. Um, very few people know about the biggest one in Iraq, which was the burn pit at Victory Base Complex. VBC, as it was known, was actually 40 square miles that essentially had been one by one, different fobs connected all up together and became VBC. And it was Camp Liberty and Camp Victory and a bunch of little tiny fobs and amongst them was Camp Trash Can. And that one was over 40 football fields. And that one was a quarter of a mile from where we lived and worked and ate and all this stuff every day. Um, and all those same things went in there. I personally have had taken truckloads 
of parts from our motor pole on damaged parts and things and dump them in there. And bedding from the housing units and things like this. So everything was in there. Um, the biggest problem we have is that people don't understand that the Department of Defense now claims, as of December um, 9th, they claim that they, they own, and I'm air quoting here, they own nine burn pits that are be in operation right now in some area of operations. They won't specifically say where because of operational security. Um, that is a misnomer, though. We've confirmed repeatedly that the Department of Defense contracts with the host nation and will pay them to come take our trash and they will burn it out literally right outside the gate of our fob in an open air pit that they construct and we pay them for this. So it's still our trash. There's still an open air pit and we're still not having any protection for any of our troops that are exposed to that. And then you add into that what 99% of the American public does not know is that there are over 50 locations here in the U.S. where the DOD is doing it. Here inside the U.S. There's a real nasty one in, in Central Florida. There's an equally nasty one in Holston, Tennessee. Um, small organizations, like an organization we work with called Ceasefire Campaign, they've managed to get the Army to cry uncle and got a consent order to make them stop burning, um, the judge gave them five years to not ignite things on fire. Uh, so in 2022, uh, in Holston, Tennessee, the Army will no longer be able to open air burn. But as, as of this moment, they are still open air burning in Holston, Tennessee. And it's everything. It's construction debris. And, and their, fav their favorite thing is they light it, light it with jet fuel, JPA. And nobody can understand that when you use that as an accelerant, you are creating dioxin and all kinds of nasty chemicals that have, you know, a half-life of forever. Right. Now, there are, there are incinerators as that could be a um, relatively safer alternative. Isn't that correct? And, and, and I know you have some information about about uh, oh, yeah. that as an option over over in uh, Iraq and in Afghanistan. What, um, any thoughts on that? Uh, what, what, well, what about in 2009, um, we, I worked on a report with uh, Dan Rather's crew. And you, people can, they can actually go to our website or our YouTube channel and they can find the report it's called Where There's Smoke. And we worked on the calculations of how many people were at BBC and how much trash was being burned there, using published records of how many people were there during the surge. And that kind of kicked the Pentagon in the pants and said, we got to do something. They were kind of embarrassed by this. So they ordered hundreds of incinerators. And they were very expensive, and it took us almost a year to get them. And I know this because I handled all of the requests for quotes and information and the purchase orders and the shipping and everything of those incinerators at my last command. That was my job. And we sent them over there. And when the first round started landing on the ground in Iraq, the ground commanders were saying, hey, um, our president just said we're shutting down. We're closing the bases in Iraq. So 
we just had to forward load them onto Afghanistan. And then fast forward till 2015, the special investigator for Afghan reconstruction, basically it was a watchdog that was sent through to see if all the money, the trillions and trillions of dollars that we spent on trying to rebuild Afghanistan, if it was actually being used for that. They went through and issued a scathing report on the abject dysfunction of the ground commanders for not using them it's with the lame excuse of one, one commander said, well, if we have the incinerator running at night, they'll see us, the enemy, oh. except they have football field lights up over the fob that run 24-7. <laughs> so the, we literally sent at, these incinerators were sitting, they're not being used or they weren't set up at all. Some were still tied up on the pallet. Um, millions of dollars of American tax dollars went down the toilet. Now, two years ago, um, the Army Research Center at Natick um, had developed an incinerator that is a plug-and-play. It fits in a Connex, which is a, a shipping container. And basically, in mass production, the cost will be about a half a million dollars a piece, which does it sounds like a lot of money to you and I, and it is to us. But to the Department of Defense, that's peanuts. The upside of these is if you have a small fob where you have 25 people, you can drop one. If you've got something as big as Victory Base Complex or Balad or Bagram, you can drop in 10. And they're daisy-chained together. You plug them in together, and they all can work together. The upside, these incinerators will incinerate to medical standards almost everything except nuclear waste. The Army has this. They did the research. They built these. They built the prototype. And two years ago, they sent out a request for sources asking for the private sector to tell them, we, hey, we can build this for you. Um, we're still waiting to find out what's happened with that. But you know how FOIAs go. Right. Um, the fact is, the next day, the Department of Defense testified at a Senate hearing and essentially screeched that they don't have the resources, they don't have the method to dispose of waste in combat zones, that operational tempo is most important, and blah, blah, blah. In other words, everything that they did the day before in their request for sources for their own product was invalid. They were trying to convince the Senate and the rest of the public that we should still be allowed to, they actually said that, we should still be allowed to open or burn because we feel it's necessary. And essentially we don't care what repercussions for our soldiers. We don't care what repercussions there are for the rest of the world, for the host nation. We don't care. We should just be allowed to do it because we're the military. That's how insane their testimony was. And, and just for the sort of a, a paint a word picture for our listeners when you're talking about bases like uh, Balad and and some of these other uh, large complexes uh, these are these are huge installations permanent in nature they're basically like like uh, cities right if you could give us that um, Sort of that description, so people understand that we're not talking about, uh, or certainly not just talking about, maybe some troops out in some very remote area, um, 
out on a you know a, a missions from in some isolated mountain region of Afghanistan. We're talking about, for instance, in the case of Iraq, essentially uh, small cities with with tens of thousands of troops that have everything from um, American fast food restaurants, gyms, swimming pools, everything. Right. Exactly, and I mean, even if your listeners just go to. Um, Wikipedia. There's an entry on there from 2019. Um, the last um, verified information was that they have Bagram Airfield, which is in Afghanistan. The ramp space and dispersal area for the aircraft, which is basically your airport area, that was over 32 acres. Just that piece. And they have on, on these larger, more permanent bases, they have fast food, you have post office, you have a commissary where you can go buy groceries, and you have a, you know, a barber and just about everything. Everything that you see in your small towns in a mid-sized city. And there's taxi services on some of them where the locals are allowed to drive civilian cars to drive people around that don't have cars. And because, the, you know... Military people don't get cars when you go overseas. It's not one of those things that issue you. And people have no comprehension of how big some of these places are. The other side of it is you have these small FOBs and COPs. FOB is forward operating base. COP is a combat outpost. And what, you, what, what, what listeners have seen in, like, the Green Mile and those things, those... Or no, I'm sorry, the green one. Excuse me, green zone. Those things are the FOB. The combat outposts are where there's ten guys, and they're stuck somewhere, and they're eating MREs out of a bag, and you know they can't shower but once a month. That's a cop, and those are the rarities. Typically, everybody's stationed on a FOB, and you'll have a few small detachments that'll be sent out to these cops, but by and large, everybody's living on, and there's laundry services and all these other things. It's a small city, and it's fully functional. Um, and I think that's the point that, that I think people need to understand, that whenever the military says operational requirements have to come first, well, the military is able to do all these other things, essentially create um, you know, an, an American installation with a lot of American convenience. It's permanent in nature. And then yet they'll have a uh, anywhere from a 10 to 40 acre size open burn pit, something that although it may happen in the United States, I think most people would certainly rise up and say that's just outrageous to be breathing these in. Let's let's uh, segue into um, Lauren uh, the really the health effects that have been seen for veterans that have returned from from uh, these areas. Well, there's it's literally an A to Z. You could open physician's desk reference and just, oh, close your eyes and pick a page. And these, because there's no consistency to the stuff that's showing up in people. And we're talking now 10, 12, even in some cases 15 years out just from Iraq and Afghanistan. That doesn't include those service members who served in the first Gulf War um, who are having the same, have the same issues. Um, they couldn't ever figure out what it was called, so they call it the Gulf War illness, which is a cluster 
of different illnesses that are have some consistency. We have rare cancers. We have rare autoimmune diseases. Um, lung diseases that are literally less than, you know, 500 ever seen in the, in the world of these cases of lung disease. And now we've got over 5,000 soldiers who've got, or veterans who've got it. Um, then we are now, we're, I'm going on the, on an average of 10 years out from when most of the surge came back and our, our most significant portion of service members started getting out was around 10 years ago. And now we're seeing their children. We are having first generation um, children born with rare cancers and rare diseases. And their parents, one or both of their parents, were exposed and have their own medical issues. And now you have children that are 8, 9, 10 years old, and some even younger, that these children are born with these incredibly rare diseases. One of my staff members, her husband served in Iraq and has a host of diseases he contracted there or from there. And they have an eight-year-old, and I'm not talking about school because we tell everybody about this. They have an eight-year-old daughter. A year ago, she was diagnosed with the rarest form of brain cancer that ever happened. They can't even... It has been sent to every geneticist that exists, and no one can identify where this came from. Wow. Um, and she's on a last-ditch experimental drug to try to save her life. And she's eight. And another... He's a member of our organization. He's not part of my team, but um, their son has an extremely rare mitochondrial disease that... I mean, incredibly rare. And these are the things that we're showing up now. And the only difference between us and the Vietnam era, the Vietnam era, especially the heavy dioxin exposure and the, the exposure to the rainbow chemicals, they their diseases took longer to show up. And I know you guys, in, in your work, you've seen you know the claims for Agent Orange exposure is yes. you know year thirty five, year forty, and. We're seeing, you know, cancers and autoimmune and lung diseases and just, you know, people will have this host of completely unrelated diseases, things that you have to have, like, all these specialists for because, and they don't connect. That's the worst part. None of it connects to each other, so you can't say, well, I can see this happening because you have this. No, that doesn't happen. And these, we're seeing people that have been home 10 years, 10, 12 years that are coming down with, you know, 12, 15 different kinds of things wrong with them that are critical, life-threatening diseases, and nobody can figure out what the common denominator is. And statistically, you just look at the numbers and you say, okay, if all of these people served the one common denominator amongst all of them, is that they served over there and breathed not just the stuff from the, from the burn pit, because we also have... And there's a great article, I'll send you guys the link for it, um, from the thoracic community, which is lung doctors, um, and just oh, chest cavity. They put out this paper about it, and they talk about it. Well, Lauren, it reminds me, as you're describing these illnesses, uh, and I know you're, you're very familiar with the film because 
three years ago you helped promote it in the in the Tampa area, which is uh, Greg Lovett's film, Delay, Deny, Hope You Die, How American Poisoned Its Soldiers. And in that film, which I encourage listeners to uh, to to uh, to see, uh, there's um, a doctor. There's several doctors that are interviewed, but there's a doctor they interviewed, and he's a civilian doctor that uh, testified how his waiting room was full of of uh, of young men and women who had served over in Iraq and Afghanistan. And keep in mind, these are young people, some of their 20s, who had been very healthy before they deployed. They come back, and uh, and you know the military, I guess, initially sent them to this doctor, and uh, that that it took some testing that that the military had not been been doing, and that that uh, normally things like chest X-rays would not pick up constrictive bronchiolitis, I think, and some other ones. Um, you know what I'm talking about, and and and, and uh, anything you'd like to um, to comment as far as uh, you know that whole situation. I know you know the the film that I'm talking about. Uh, but I do. Fact- I actually I helped Greg with the research for that. Um, yeah. One of I know a lot about it because I have constrictive constrictive bronchiolitis. I was one of the lucky ones that I was on active duty, and they sent me because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with my lungs. An x-ray made it look like I had TB scarring, but they couldn't, you know, I wasn't getting better, and all the drugs they were giving me wasn't making me any better, and the civilian doctor they sent me to said, we're going to have to do a lung biopsy, and they did the lung biopsy, and when he woke me up in recovery, he's like, I hate to tell you this, but I have no idea what's wrong with you. I, I, the pictures are horrible. It looks like you inhaled Drano, wow. and from there, the odyssey began, because the doctor you're talking about is Dr. Miller. His name's Robert Miller, and he's at Vanderbilt Medical Center in Tennessee. Um, Dr. Miller was the first one to find um, the first group of soldiers were all on active duty, and they were all exposed to the Mosul sulfur fire. There's a sulfur mine in Mosul, Iraq, that um, the mine was set on fire deliberately, and they were all exposed to the burning sulfur. And all of them, I think there were 90 soldiers that were sent to Dr. Miller, or 90-something. I know it was 75 of them had constrictive bronchiolitis. He did lung biopsies on them all. Since then, Dr. Miller is one of three um, doctors in the nation that we work with um, alongside our community partners and other VSOs and advocates. Um, Dr. Cecil Rose at Jewish Health, Jewish National in Colorado, um, and Dr. Anthony Zima at Stony Brook Medical Center in New York. Um, Dr. Zima has done an amazing amount of research on the particulate matter because it's not just about the stuff we breathe, it's also the stuff that was in the ground and that every time the wind blows, literally, um, that stuff is lifted up. The chemical weapons is that Saddam used on his own people. That's just in the ground. And all of these things, and then add in that soup from the burn pits, and Dr. Um, Butler, Dr. David Butler from the National Academy was a speaker at our conference last year, and he said the, the biggest thing that people don't understand is that they have, when you have a situation like what we have in Iraq and Afghanistan, you end up with um, orphan, orphan chemicals. They're brand new baby chemicals that are made when you mix chemicals that have never been mixed before. You have these brand new chemicals. And not only do we not know what's going to happen to you when you're exposed to them, because we have, we've never seen them before. We don't have any experience. 
and we have no research on it, which is why when the Department of Defense and the VA start talking about, well, we need more time to study, they hang their hat on that little piece of information. What they refuse to publicly discuss is the fact that the EPA and the CDC and WHO and OSHA have quite literally thousands of laws for this country and uh, even other companies from foreign countries, if you want to do business here, that you have to abide by. And they have standards that are in place that are health standards and environmental standards to keep our people and our environment safe. And the irony of this is that the Department of Defense uses EPA standards in its regulations, including the 2009 environmental regulation that governed, it was updated in 2009, that governed what they did overseas. They actually use EPA regulations in there, including parts per million of each thing that they find and what, when is it not safe anymore, except they choose to ignore it all. And when we talk about they want more science, they claim they need more research. And I want to cram that research up their fourth point of contact because <laughs> they refuse to sit down. They will not even say the words, the, the acronyms. They won't say EPA. They won't say CDC. They won't say OSHA. They will not say them. In hearings, in private meetings, they will not even say these things because it's like it's going to poison them if they say it. That yeah. we, well, we have to acknowledge that the CDC says this. No, we have to acknowledge that the Department of Defense and the VA are going to stand around with their fingers in their ears going, la, 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 we don't have any research. But they, in fact, do. They have access to all of that. And that is what my organization and a few others that we're working with, that we are working on for 2021, is that we're going to, we are going to reinvent the wheel. We're not going to go back and ask, oh, hey, let's give us one more presumptive please, VA, and let us take you to court for 30 years to get it, um, which I think is the most insane thing that people have ever done, is keep going back and doing the exact same thing, asking VA for the crumb. Um, no, we're going to go in there and we're going to tell VA this is how it's going to be done. And, oh, I'm sorry, if you don't like that, you don't get the decision. Um, right now, we have a unique place in history. I've been doing this work for 11 years counting. And all of it was based on the fact that I got so sick and I had no idea why. And I got to deal with the abysmal... It, I won't call it care, but what, it, what, what passed for care and services at VA. And I started this because it was like, this is a joke. I can't believe anybody deals with this. It made my head hurt just getting a letter from them. Never mind dealing with them. And I don't know how people did it. Now I know because there are thousands of agencies and VSOs out there that, well, this is the way we've always done it. Well... The definition of insanity is keep doing it the same way. We're going to keep having the same problem. We keep letting the DOD get away with contaminating the world and everybody that works for them, everybody, civilians and military alike, they all get sick. Everybody gets sick. Everybody gets something. Camp Lejeune, the 
water contamination at Camp Lejeune. That was fast-track legislation that was taken out of a VA policy. They skipped over the nine pages of burn pit policy to take and extract five pages about the water contamination at Camp Lejeune to create people being able to get care and services. Right. But still, we are still talking and talking about, well, if you, we're not sure if you breathed, you know, 42 toxic chemicals that turned into a toxic soup and it gave you like five different life-threatening things. Let me, let me put it this way. It did. And it's not, I don't have to prove causality. I have to prove that it's more likely it's not. And that is the problem that everybody's talking about right now is that they want causation. DOD and VA are demanding causation. And they've never held anyone to that standard ever before. And they're doing it deliberately now because they know that we have millions, not a half a million, not a million. We have right now conservatively four million veterans who are exposed and sick. That's conservatively, and that does not even include the numbers from the Gulf, first Gulf War. Wow. Well, let me not want you, to um, pay. Um, Go ahead. Before, before I ask you to elaborate more on how you think um, the, the VA can best be forced to do the right thing, um, I know between what Congress and the VA has done in recent years, one of those things was to establish this so-called airborne hazards and open burn pit registry <laughs> six years ago. And I know you have a lot of insight about that. Can you tell us about this registry? Really, what is it about? What, what was its purpose and what are its flaws? Well, the purpose, um, at least what was being proffered to the general public, was that we're going to give you a registry where everybody that thinks they were exposed um, you can go on there and you can put all the places, all the things you're exposed to and, you know, all your symptoms and all your illnesses and all that good stuff. And we're going to do that. And then it's actually in the law. Um, we're going to take that information and it's going to be made available to rating examiners who are handling your claims. It's going to be made available to medical providers who are treating you. It's going to be made available to researchers so that we can find ways to help you and cure you, or at least, you know, treat you, treat your illnesses. That was the lie. When we beta tested, and I say we, there were, I think, off my head, there was like 20-something of us that did the beta testing on the questions for the registry. There were over 200 questions. And the majority of those questions were a name things like, you know, um, did my mother smoke pot when she was pregnant? I have no idea. I wasn't there. Um, you know, did I lick lead paint as a child? Um, where did I live growing up? Um, if I recall correctly, on the beta testing, there were like three or four questions about where we were stationed. None about what we were actually exposed to. Um, it was the most ridiculous thing, and we all came out of it and said, are you kidding me? Fix this. And VA told us, oh, sure, we'll take care of it. 
not only did not take care of it, but they actually, they were already eight months behind schedule, according to the statute, and they were only doing it to shut us up. So they went live with that abomination. As it currently exists right this minute, it doesn't look any different. Part of the law was that in, after one year of operation, the National Academy um, was required to do an efficacy study of the registry. They spent a year pulling apart the data that it was in there and, and how it worked and how it didn't work and all that. And if anybody, any of your listeners want a copy of that, I have the full unredacted report. Um, it's, it's public. It's not hidden. Um, but we have it, and I can email it at their leisure. The, the best part of the whole report, it's like 47 pages long, was the summary that the key statement that they made was, by the way, <laughs> I'm, I'm paraphrasing you, by the way, the architecture of this thing is such junk <laughs> that nothing can be derived from this. We can pull basic data sets of demographics, name, address, things like that. They cannot even pull a data set to know where everybody got stationed. They can't. They are incapable because the architecture of the actual registry is junk. And their recommendation was to the VA that they go out and hire from the private sector. The implication was do not use your own stupid people who built this thing. Go hire from the private sector a company that is familiar and comfortable with building data entry and data registry. You know, like the people who built Ancestry.com, they could do it. Hewlett-Packard could do it with their eyes closed. Uh, Microsoft would do it with their eyes closed and one hand tied behind their back. But that was in 2017. February 2017, that report was issued. And one would think that the VA would take that giant black eye and go, crap, we've been caught, let's fix this. Because they're also in the other side of the room getting pushed from five different directions by people like us, by other organizations, and publicity, and people talking. And then we have people that are extremely high-ranking that are dying from horrible diseases, like General Heston. All of this is happening at the same time. So Congress is starting to ask questions. The public's asking questions. And we go in there in June of 2019 and meet with the secretary's office. And amongst other things, we asked, <laughs> we asked them to their face. So here's this report, and it says, and it, it's really clear. There's, a child could understand this. What you need to do to fix the registry, because you guys are got DOD, has, they're putting it on people's LESs. If you think you're exposed, please go register on the VA burn pet registry. And they're sending out little placards and little brochures, and they're telling everybody that the registry is the next thing, best thing since Twinkies, except it's a big, fat lie, because the registry is nothing but a black hole in cyberspace. Your data goes in, and it's absolutely useless. We asked them, when are you going to do this? Here's the, here's the thing that they said, and we had, we had checked with a very well-known IT computer company and ask that question. How much would it cost? How big of a nut is it to get this registry fixed? And that person who was a senior executive with that company told us 
eh, it would probably take us about 30 days and about a million dollars. He goes, and we'd just say a million dollars just to be irritating. He goes, but it would probably take my, my very entry-level people about 30 days to fix that thing. And that was when there was 140,000 people on it. So we were told, never. We have no intention of doing anything with that. We are not going to do it. We're not going to fix it. We don't care. That's what was told to our face. So a year and a half later, probably nothing has happened. Is that, is that well, fair to say? Well, that's the real irony here. So <laughs> a year and a half later, um, part of the statute that created the registry also, it, it mandated that first efficacy study. It mandated a second one five years after the first one. And on December 8th, the National Academy had a what's called a charge meeting with the VA, where the VA comes in and actually charges them with the task. And they are supposed to charge them with the task of doing this, the second study. Another efficacy study to see if their recommendations were put in place and if so, how, how effective they were, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the meeting we sat in on. And Dr. Shooping, who is the chief consultant for environmental exposure for the VA, um, he was very proud of himself. Like, he, we're all on a Zoom meeting, and he's, like, almost patting himself on the back. That VA has, right now, like, in the last 60 days, sent out a RFI, which is a request for information from the private sector, asking for companies to bid on fixing the registry. And when I asked the question of how many of the recommendations has VA done, we were told VA wasn't going to take any questions. Okay, sure. So much for transparency. Yeah, so much for transparency. However, what VA did during that meeting, and there were, oh, goodness, I think there were eight people total or ten people total there were five from VA and five from the National Academy, and there were a grand total of one, two, three, four of us um, for advocates sitting in on this Zoom meeting. And I, I was the last one to speak. And, and as you guys know, and you, any listeners that have heard me before know I, I don't have a filter. So it might, my only thing does it after this whole thing. We listened to the VA. I mean, quite seriously, almost gleefully talk about this thing that was set up back in 2017. The VA came up with this brilliant idea, which is something that should have been done from day one, was they created a database where every single service member goes in from the day they leave boot camp. And it follows them throughout their entire career. Every duty station you ever go to, it's all documented in there. Sounds like a wonderful idea. They started setting this up and building it in 2017. It's called ILER. It's Individual Longitudinal Electronic Record. It's an individual record for every single service member. There's two problems with this. Number one, ILER is not available to the VA yet. And we, the collective community, are fighting with the DOD to give us access. They don't even want to give veterans access to their own records. They are adamant that they do not want to give us that. VA has not, as of December 8th of that meeting, VA still does not have access to it. 
but all of those representatives from VA, and they're all senior consultant people, they were tap dancing about how wonderful Eiler was. And all five of them came right out and said that we should look to use Eiler and replace the registry with Eiler. That sounds like a great idea, except for the records in Eiler only go back to 2010, and they cannot go back any further. They can't. It's not like they can have somebody sit down and data entry, you know, right. doesn't, you know, 100 years hey. worth of military. Hey, Lauren? Yeah. Lauren, this is uh, Richard. I, I got a comment to you. know, I represent a lot of veterans, um, and so many of them come to me and we start talking about, you know, their claims. And right away they tell me, you know, they were in Iraq, Afghanistan, and and then they say, oh, and by the way, I've registered with the burn pits. And and I say, okay. And I say, well, I say, well, what do you think that means to you? You know, when you when you did that, you know, what's your understanding? Well, I don't really know. No, they don't. <laughs> Is their response. But I'm supposed to, you know, have all these possible medical issues, and I have to be registered in order to be covered. And Which is not true either. Right. But, I mean, I, I hear that same, I get that mm-hmm. same response, like, every time. And I'm not asking for it. No, this because is that's like, what they're this being is like the co- This is the company line, exactly. It it's is. the company yeah. line, and they're they have no idea they have why they're... Register. Why they're registering. Yeah. They don't know why they're registering. And if they actually complete it, because one of the key things the Academy found was survey fatigue. Because it takes approximately three hours, if their servers are working good, which that's a crapshoot. If their servers are working good, it takes about three hours to complete this. And it's redundancy over and over and over again. The same questions over and over again. And they have an over 50% dropout of they just stop, they just don't finish the survey because it's, it's it's either getting kicked out, timed out, whatever. And they, they what they're also being told, they're being told you have to register on there if you want any care for any of these things. They also tell them that upon completion of that, you'll get contacted by environmental health to do a screening. And nobody ever does that. No, they, 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 I, I've not had one veteran, and I'm talking... A lot of veterans that I represent, I've not, I've not had one veteran get to that next no. step. No, and they won't. And I will tell you that please share with your clients. If they believe that they have exposures, especially if they are symptomatic for especially weird things and things that are seemingly not connected in any way, shape, or form, they can go to their primary care provider at the VA and they can request, and I suggest they do it in writing, that they be referred to risk. Those are risk is W R I I S C. It's an acronym, like everything. Uh, it's for the War Related Injury and Illness Center. There are three of them in the nation, and VA will pay for the travel to send a veteran to risk, and they cannot deny a request. The primary care provider has to put the request in, but they cannot deny it. And when they go, they need to plan to be there for five days because mm-hmm. at all, there's one in Palo Alto, there's one in New Jersey, and there's one in D.C. 
they need to plan to be there for five days because they are worked up from head to toe. And everything, every exposure they can conceivably think of will be gone over. We have had great success of getting people into risk despite VA's pushback. And I mean hard pushback. We tell people they cannot refuse you. They just ignore the requests for months and months. And then they say, well, you really don't need to go. We can take care of you here. No, it's not a matter of whether you can take care of me. With risk's purpose is to identify all the things you've been exposed to and all the things that are wrong with you in one fell swoop and set up treatment plans if possible. So, Lauren, how does the, someone feel if, if they are getting a slow-rolled denial of, of a request to go to risk? If they're being refused or the slow roll, um, tell them to contact our office because we can okay. push buttons and I can well, put people in high places. Let's remind our listeners because I know we've got about five minutes left. I'd like you to go ahead and, and, uh, and tell our listeners how they can reach out to uh, your organization, Veteran Warriors, uh, contact information, website, all that good stuff, and, and what they can do to support your work. Well, first and foremost, our website, it's very easy. It's veterans, that's with an S, dash warriors, veter, or excuse me, veteran, no S, with a dash, and warriors, veterantechwarriors.org. And <clears throat> on there, there's a contact page. Hit that button. It fills it out. It sends us your email. You put that in, and we will email you back. Um, we're closed until January 4th because of the holidays. Um, I can only make slave labor work so hard. Um, <laughs> we're an all-volunteer organization that no one in the organization, no one on the board of directors gets a dime. Um, if they choose to donate, we function as a not-for-profit. We are not a 501c3 because we do an immense amount of lobbying, and that's against IRS rules. Um, so we function as a not-for-profit. Um, there are donate buttons all over our website, and you can also find our different testimonies, different news things we've done before, um, different statements for the record that we've put into VA over a multitude of different things, um, and statements that we've given to members of Congress. Um, they've asked us to write opinion letters on various bills. We've done that. Um, all of that's on there. We also, as you mentioned at the inception of the show, we are dealing with and we are currently suing the VA over the, their caregiver program and that the recent law change that allowed the Vietnam era to get in now um, created a huge firestorm of problems. And if there are Vietnam era families out there that are being affected and not being allowed to get into the program, we suggest they contact us because we're dealing with those as well. Um, but if, especially any veterans that are because it's not just burn pits. A good friend of mine, P.J. Widener, um, he runs K2, <clears throat> the K2 guys. Um, tiny little piece of crap island that the Russians turned it into basically the world's biggest Superfund site. It is permanently, the whole place is nothing but contamination. And up until, like, last week, the DOD's, like, slow-rolling the numbers. Well, the first they say, well, there's only 1,500 people exposed. Then they say, oh, well, no, it's a little over 2,000. They're finally up to now admitting to over 15,000 service members exposed at K2. Um, 
I mean, and these people were like walking around in black goo that is nothing but radioactive crap. Um, but they're getting their help because we all keep talking about this. Because when we talk about toxic exposure, it's not just burn pits. It's air, water, soil, everything. We are forced to be the guinea pig. And they're like, that's why the DOD's position of, well, it really doesn't matter. You know, combat operations, bullshit. Excuse me, guys. That, you know, this, this operational tempo garbage, you know, we don't have to. We can still be amazing war fighters and right. rule the world, and, and, but we don't have to kill our people off to do it. Right. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's a huge issue. You would think that the DOD would recognize it, but they, they don't. And, uh, and certainly, you know, a lot, of, a lot of tragic things happen because of war, but at a minimum, one would think that uh, the VA, whose mission is to take care of veterans and their families, need to be, need to own up to this. Uh, so mm. we're about out of well, time. What, another what? show, another time, I'll tell you about the liability issue, about what? why they're not doing it. Yeah, that, that, you just opened up a whole can of worms there, David. At the end of the show. <laughs> yep. That's a whole well, show in itself uh, of why uh, this is why, happening. Why it's isn't our, the VA taking care of our military families? That's yeah. that segue to our next uh, oh. next edition when Lauren can join us again. But, uh, Lauren, uh, real quick, what can um, what, what do you think uh, our listeners can, can do uh, or, or should do uh, as far as... Right this minute, watch who's going to be your members of Congress in the House and the Senate. And when they, if they're new, wait till they get in there. You're going to have to wait till like February 1st. If they're the same people, they're incumbents, then you can get their email addresses. Nobody's answering phones in Washington right now because of COVID. Email them. Tell them that continued denial of care and services for those exposed to toxic chemicals is not only an embarrassment to this country, but it openly defies the fact that we, the taxpayers pay for this privilege of telling us to pound sand. Right. They need to, they need to tell their members of Congress that. Right. Well, that's great advice, Lauren, and uh, we're about out of time. I want to thank you once again for being on our show, and I want to thank you for all the great work that you're doing for veterans. And, uh, again, hope uh, you'll be back with us again sometime in the near future. Keep our listeners updated on your organization's um, many projects. Thanks again, well, Lauren. Thank you guys thank you, for having Lauren. me again. I appreciate it. Thanks again, David. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, you Lauren. You too. Yep. Bye. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, well again, she's, always a ma- she's always a mouthful. She's got plenty of information, man. You can just sit back and just listen to her talk. Well, she's got lots of insight about um, many, many complex issues, including the toxic contamination, as she said, not just from open burn pits, but um, other many other sources but as well as the, um, uh, the VA's uh, caregiver support program and our listeners that may have missed the show uh, several weeks ago, go to our website, uh, bbsradio.com forward slash the Veterans News Hour, and you can listen to our archived shows. Uh, and, uh, again, we thank Lauren Price for, for all her hard work. Uh, Rick, we're about out of time, so if you yeah. want to uh, take us to the Coaching and the Care, we need to wrap up. Yeah, the Coaching and Care program, it helps uh, veterans having difficulty transitioning to home life. Returning home can be very tough for our veterans. 
and, very, and, and adjusting to the home life and everything else. And the loved ones can help them do that. And the coaching and the care program helps them do that. Uh, you can uh, contact that program at one triple eight eight two three seven four five eight. Coaching the Care offers free coaching to help you help your veteran. Its hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. That number again is one triple eight eight two three seven four five eight. Once again, I'd like to remind listeners that if you know a veteran who is suicidal or in a crisis of any kind, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs also has a Veterans Crisis Line. You can call that number at 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Many veterans have committed suicide because they did not get the help they needed. Help them get the care they need to cope with their problems. Once again, the Veterans Crisis Line can help. Call 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. And I can tell people that just this past Christmas Day, two of my clients committed suicide. Oh, how tragic. And I got the phone call the day after from their widow's. And um, you just, you know, I was on the phone with each of them for like at least an hour and a half, and it's just, it's unbelievable. So that crisis line, again, is 1-800-273-8255. You know, David and I put this information out there, not, you know, not just to hear ourselves talk. It's happening. Veterans are committing suicide. So call that number. If you know someone who's in a state of crisis, pick up the phone, call that number, and alert somebody that a veteran is in a state of crisis. Help that person. Thank you. Thank you, David. Yeah, thanks, Rick. Yeah, and that toll-free number is actually the ni- the national crisis line, too, 1-800-273-8255, and the press-1 function is specifically for the veterans line. So I'd like to thank uh, everyone for listening. Thank our uh, our producer at BBS Radio, Mr. Doug Newsom, and we hope you'll tune in next week, same time, same stage, for another edition. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Thank you for listening to the Veterans News Hour with David Corey and Richard Hurley. We hope you found this week's program very informative. Be sure to invite your friends and all the veterans you know to tune in next week when we'll have another great show on veterans issues. Meanwhile, you can listen to our other recorded episodes on the Veterans News Hour webpage on bbsradio.com. Thanks again for listening to the Veterans News Hour.